Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. Most of you know, for the last four months, we've been doing a series called Vistas. And what Vistas is, is an overview of God's story. It's a a big picture overview of the entire story of the Bible. We started in Genesis, and uh, we're in the New Testament now. We're in the book of Acts. Uh, We've just been kind of doing an overview, kind of like if you were watching ESPN, and they gave you the highlights from a a three-and-a-half-hour-long football game, and the highlights took about 30 seconds to a minute. That's what we're doing. We're taking the whole story of the Bible, 66 books written over 1,500 years, and we're kind of encapsulating them into major themes. We've been on it for about four months, and today we're going to talk about how the church was born, and specifically how the church was born in Holy Spirit power. We're going to look at the church because last week we looked at the fact that Jesus came and died on a Roman cross for our sins, took the penalty of our sins in his own body on the cross, that he was buried in our place, died for us, that he rose again from the dead, amen, and is alive forevermore, and that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. So we learned about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and what it means for our life. Today we're going to find out what happened as a result of that death burial, and resurrection. You might not know this, but when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He didn't just die so that individual people could get a ticket to heaven. He didn't just die so you could be forgiven and be with God when you die. He died on the cross to get an actual people. He died to form a people, and that people is called the church. Acts chapter 20 verse 28 says that He gave his own blood for a bride, the church, for the church. He poured it out for the church. So we're going to learn about the church today. And I want to start with this text in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I want you to notice that Jesus said he would build his church. Look at this. He says this to Peter. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, and the rock he's talking about, is the rock of the revelation of who he is. And on this rock, notice this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've brought this scripture to God in prayer. I remember in the early years of our church, we really struggled. We went through some hard stuff. We went through a church split at one point, and there were times in that season when I wasn't sure if the church was going to make it, and I have to tell you, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. In fact, I have to tell you, I wasn't sure I wanted to make it. There were times I was kind of looking for a way out, and during that season, when it seemed like the church was shaken and we were going through different things, I would come before the Lord in prayer and I would lift up Matthew 16, 18 to him. I'd say, Lord, you said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, 
They labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord guard the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so I would come before the Lord regularly and I'd say, Lord, please guard your city. Take care of your church. Don't let the gates of hell prevail. Lord, help us get through the season. And he heard my cry. He was faithful. But the part I really want to focus in on are the words, I will build my church. The reason that's important is because a lot of people talk about the church like it's a man-made institution. I've had people come up to me right here in services afterward, and they say stuff like this, I don't really believe in organized religion and organized churches. I mean, I don't need the church to experience God. I can experience God on a mountain. I can experience God at the ocean. I can experience God sitting on the ground at night looking up at the stars. I can experience God at home with my Bible and prayer in front of me. And I always just say, I agree. That's true. How many of you know that's true? But let me tell you what you won't do in those situations. You won't grow into maturity. Because the church is not a human institution. It's not made up. The idea didn't come from men, from women, from people. It came from God. The church is something that God set in motion, that Jesus set in motion. Jesus died to win and build a church. And that was, the, that was the purpose, to bring a community of people from every race and kindred and tribe and tongue and blood, every kind of person on planet earth, and to bring them together into a new kind of community. Not a community that was built on the fact that we have the same color skin or we come from the same part of the world, but a community that was built on Jesus as the common denominator. And that's what he came to do. He came to win a church for himself. So the church isn't just, you know, man's idea. It's God's idea. It's, the Bible calls it the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, the body of Christ. Think about some of those metaphors for the church. He calls us his own body. Now, I don't think when Jesus was building his church that he had some of these sad and distorted images in mind that we hear from a guy named Colin Smith from a sermon that he preached on. And I've shared this particular part before, but he said this. He said, many times people look at these images of the church and think of the church this way. They kind of think of the church as a gas station. Um, that is, the church is a place where you go to fill up your spiritual gas tank when you're running low. You know, get good worship, good sermon, and then it'll keep me going for the week. Now, listen, if you're young in your faith and you're just getting going and you don't really, haven't really learned how to read the Bible and pray yet and you're just kind of learning to get along, that's okay for a season, right? That's a beginning point. The, the church can kind of be like a gas station. But I'm going to tell you, if you're only counting on once a week fill-ups, you're going to be in trouble pretty soon. In fact, for some of you, you run out of gas on Monday, Right? And maybe, maybe some of you make it till Tuesday or Wednesday, but you start to realize that your tank is depleting and you don't have anything there because you weren't created just to fill up on Sunday. You were created to all week long be meeting God personally and then gathering with Him in the weekly gathering to celebrate what He's doing in your own life and even to have other people help you carry your burdens. Does that make sense? Secondly, they see the church as a movie theater. For many people, the church is a place that offers entertainment. You go for an hour of escape, hopefully in comfortable seats, 
You leave your problems at the door and you come out smiling and feeling better than when you went in. And again, I mean, listen, I remember years ago, I was getting up here to preach. It was a Sunday morning. I was a very young pastor, so I was still doing stupid stuff. Well, I'm still doing stupid stuff, so I guess it has nothing to do with age. And, uh, and I got up here to preach, and I looked out at people, and I realized people were waiting for a performance. In fact, you might be here today, and you're waiting for a performance. You came in, and you're kind of, you know, you, you're assessing the church. Maybe you're a guest, or you've been here for a little bit, and you're assessing the church, and you're waiting for the pastor to do his thing. And then you're going to kind of check, funny, check, good-looking, check, <laughs> right, right? Right? Bible, you know, I mean, people do that, right? And if it checks the box, if it checks all the boxes, then, you know, maybe you'll stick around, right? That's what we do. But the reality is, is I'm not here to perform for you. This can't be entertainment. This is serious business. And remember, what we're doing here, this is just practice. What happens when you leave here today and you go out into your real life, that's getting in the game. And so here is where we learn to worship, to listen to the voice of God, to look into Scripture and learn from it and apply it. This is where we learn what it means to worship in the midst of our pain, you know, to to lift holy hands to God even though we just feel like laying down on the ground and giving up, but we we take our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and we worship. We do that here so that when we leave on Monday morning, when we go to work and we face difficult circumstances or a boss that it's hard to work for, we in our heart can lift up our eyes and look to God and say, nevertheless, regardless of my circumstances, I will worship you. See, this is where we practice. But that's where we get in the game. Does that make sense? Some people see the church as a drugstore. It's a place where you can fill that prescription that will deal with your pain. It's a place that's therapeutic, right? And, and listen, again, these all have truths to them, but if they become, if church becomes the main place that you kind of replace your pain with a, a little bit, an hour and a half of some good stuff, then you're going to be sick, if you try, trying to like live on, uh, on, on drugs like addicts do, right? you can't do that. You, you have to be healthy in your day-to-day life, learning to get healthy, growing in community with people. It's okay if church is therapeutic to some degree, but if that's the main place that you're looking, you're going to end up ultimately being disappointed because it's actually God himself in a day-to-day relationship and the community of his people walking alongside together that's going to ultimately heal and restore you. Or they see the church as a big box retailer. It's the consumerism of our time. It's a place that offers the best products in a clean and safe environment for you and your family. The church offers great service at a low price, all in one stop. For many people, the church is a producer of programs for children and young people and my family. It's all about, what can you do for me? And when we approach church as a consumer and we see it as a store and we see it as a place where I'm going to get my needs met, we miss out on the blessing of serving in a community. See, I'm going to tell you something we've learned and then studies have been done to confirm it. And that is that if you're a part of our church here, if you're hungry for connection, And even if you're here, maybe say you've been coming for a while and you find I'm having a hard time connecting, I have one question for you. Have you said, have you got involved yet in finding a place to serve? 
Because do you know a national study was just done? And this is what that national study found. That national study found that the number one way that people connect in churches is they actually get involved in serving. And in serving, they find connections with fellow believers. Right? And so what happens when you begin to look outside of yourself and not approach the church as a consumer, what can the church do for me? But you begin to say, how can I get in the game? How can I be a blessing? How can I help someone else grow in their faith? How can I come alongside? When that happens, you begin to experience connection. Does that make sense? You see, 2,000 years ago, 120 disciples gathered together and they prayed in an upper room in a house in Jerusalem. Most scholars say that house belonged to Peter. Jesus had told these disciples after he ascended into heaven, he told them, go into the city and wait, and I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. And so they waited for 10 days. They waited. They fasted. They prayed in a room, 120 people. Now think about it. 120 people, 10 days in the same room together. Ooh, I bet it got ripe in there. And they're in there praying, and they're calling out to God. And this feast in Israel's history called the Feast of Pentecost came. And on that day of the Feast of Pentecost, the Scripture says, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them in power, and they spilled out into the streets, speaking in tongues. And people heard their own languages, and those people gathered together in a crowd, and they were attracted. And then Peter stood up with the other disciples, and he preached, and he said, this is a prophecy being fulfilled. And, and then that 120 that had prayed and waited after Peter preached became 3,000, because 3,000 came to faith in Jesus. And that started what we call the New Testament church. That church was born in power and in fire. And that church provides for us a bit of a pattern of what church could be like. It's their story, but it's our story too. And that's the part of the Bible we come to now. We come to that part when what Jesus died for is born. And what Jesus died for was a community, a people, a body a family, a temple, amen, a bride. He came to die so he could get us. I'm excited about it. So the church was born, as I just said, when the Holy Spirit filled people who were hungry and waiting. I want you to see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Many of you will be really familiar with this. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So these people had gathered together, and they were waiting, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the 120, and they, filled, they went out into the streets, and they began to share what had happened. And Peter stood up, and he preached. These were people who were waiting in obedience and expectation. This had never happened before. There had never been an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon people in history like this before. It was the first of its kind. And it's what formed what we're a part of. I just want you to think about this for a minute because sometimes 
we don't make the connection. You and I are sitting here today. You might not even yet be a follower of Jesus, a believer, but you're investigating. But those of you that are believers, you're sitting here today, and you are part of the fruit of that event that happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And once it began, it was like a series of dominoes through history. It began to fall, and every nation has been touched. Every kingdom is being touched. There are people groups all over the earth that right now are being touched. I talked to a young man. It was so exciting. I talked to a young man the other day right outside Tri-State. He's a friend of some people in our congregation. He's a young man that's been in college down in Pullman. He's been a part of a, a Pullman college campus outreach. He's leaving this afternoon to go to China. He's going to go to mainland China, and he's going to be a part of a campus outreach. And he's, he's going to reach into the people of China with the gospel. He's going to a city. Listen to this. He's going to a city that has over 400,000 college students. And here's his passion. I want to go there and make disciples quietly, secretly, behind the scenes. Isn't that powerful? That's the passion of his heart. That has happened throughout history over and over and over again. And because of that, because Jesus said, go into all the earth, go to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every kindred, go to every people and proclaim this gospel. Because he said that, you and I are sitting. Now listen, I don't know if you've ever looked at a map, but if you look at where Israel is, and you look at where Jerusalem is, and you look at where Moses Lake is, I would say it's the ends of the earth. But we're sitting here today worshiping Jesus Christ from 2,000 years ago because a group of people gathered together in a room and prayed for 10 days and God poured his spirit and then they began to go out to the world that they knew and then their disciples went out to the world that they knew and their disciples went out to the world that they knew and it's gone on and on and on for 20 centuries, 21, so that we're sitting here today worshiping at this time. Thank you, Lord, for obedient, faithful, expectant, hungry people. Secondly, the church was born when Jesus was proclaimed. It wasn't just an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but Peter stood up full of the Holy Spirit. This is the guy who denied that he knew Jesus three times. Now he's bold. He stands up full of the Holy Spirit, and what does he preach? He preaches the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. He provides a blueprint for preaching. He preaches with power that Jesus is crucified and risen, and all these people go, we need that. The promise of salvation was preached to them, and the promise of the Holy Spirit was preached to them. And, And this is what Peter said when he preached. He said, this promise, what happens here today, is meant for every generation to come. Let me show you this in the scripture. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39 and 41. So let me tell you what's happened. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. They've gone outside. The crowd gathered. Peter stood up. He preached. He preached Jesus, crucified, risen, ascended, Lord, Savior, died for your sins. And then he says to them, this this one that was the Messiah, you Jewish people here didn't recognize him as the Messiah, and you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead And he finishes preaching, and this is what happens. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So I want you to notice when Peter comes to the end of his message and he preaches and they said, what do we do? Here's his salvation response. Here's what he says is necessary for them. The process, he says. And he says, first of all, repent. Or should I say it like this? Repent! Thou foul sinners! Turn or burn! Hell awaits if you don't repent. Isn't that what you expect when you hear somebody say repent? How many of you expect a sandwich board on the front here, right? And I'm on the streets, repent for the end is at hand, right? That's what you expect. But let me tell you what repent really means. Repent doesn't, you know, it's, it's not this like word like, you know, you're going to turn, turn or burn. I mean, there is an element to that. But ultimately, this is what repent means. Repent means just change your mind. It's the word metanoia in the Greek. It means change your thinking, Change your mind, turn from your sin, and trust Jesus. So here's the idea, and I've shared this here before, but if I'm walking in self-absorption and my sin in this direction, and this is the ultimate path to destruction, see, the way of self is the way of destruction. Just let's get that clear. If you're Lord of your own life, if you're on the throne of your own will and your own heart, you will ultimately lead your own life into a ditch and into destruction. Okay, so human beings weren't created to be self-led. They were created to be led by the spirit of an indwelling God. That's how we were, in the beginning, we were created for fellowship with God. So here's what happened. There, there, you know, life, we're all moving in this direction. This is toward the path of destruction. And we hear the gospel. We hear the voice of God calling us. And we hear it in our ears, in our head. Our mind is in our head, right? And we begin to turn. We begin to turn to listen and to see and learn a different perspective. And as we turn, we can't move in another direction unless the rest of us follows. The heart, the will, the body. So repentance is simply once our head, our mind begins to change its direction, the rest of us have to turn with it. And then we begin to move toward the path of life. So repentance means the changing of your thinking process. You, you accept a new truth. That new truth alters the will. It alters the emotions. It alters the inner person. And the inner person turns and begins to move toward life. So Peter says, here's how a person is reconciled to God. You repent. You change your mind. Turn from your sin. Trust Jesus as your substitute on the cross. You, you're baptized. You demonstrate publicly that you have trusted in Jesus by being water baptized. You receive forgiveness of sins. Trusting in Jesus as your, as, as your sin bearer results in being forgiven and loved by God. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling and empowering you is for now because God is calling you to walk in a new way and he's saying, I don't want you to walk in a new way out of your own effort. I want you to walk in a new way from my indwelling presence and power. So this isn't up to you to just try to be a better person. Listen, if you think the Christian gospel is, you know, think differently so you can be a better person, um, you know that doesn't work. I've tried it. 
I've tried willpower, I'm going to change, I'm going to be a better person. It don't work. I mean, to a certain degree, I can change some of my behavior, but I can't change the very essence of who I am. I can't change my character, my nature, my inner person. I need a work of God inside of me to change me in the way I think. And that's what repentance produces, and that's what the gift of the Holy Spirit produces. The Spirit comes to indwell you. The Scripture says regenerates you, fills you, gives you power. So now I can walk this way against the storm and I can walk in the holy nature of God because a new person indwells me and that new person is Christ, right? And then these gifts are for every generation and then out of that, 3,000 people are saved. Now, what did this 3,000 plus people, these newly born believers, this church do? What did they do and become? What what, what came of them? What did they look like? I want to look at, and and really I want to focus on this text What came out of that event? Once they were baptized, once they came to Christ, what did they look like? And this is really where I want to talk about a pattern for us. Look at um, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. If you've got a Bible, look on it. It'll be up here on the screen too. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. This is the 3,000 people. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Is there anybody else that when you read this goes, you just go, wow, I wish church was more like that. Anybody wish that church was more like that? Amen. Some of you are like, no, I'm not selling my stuff and giving it to anybody. What are you talking about? That's crazy. That's crazy talk. Let's look at some, some different points, some different uh, elements to what made the church the church. The first thing you notice is that the church was born devoted to what's important. It says, and they devoted themselves, and then it lists four things they devoted themselves to. They were devoted. That Greek word means uh, to be constant, persevering, committed, and courageous through our union with Jesus and His people. And I'm not talking about devotion to a cause, but devotion to a person and a people. So what they were really devoted to was God and to one another, and that showed itself in the things that followed, which takes me to the next point. The church was born devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And this is an important statement I'm about to make, so listen carefully. A true work of the Holy Spirit will always lead to healthy teaching from Scripture. Now, this is important because, hear my heart on this, I love the moving of the Holy Spirit. I want to see more of the moving of the Holy Spirit. In my life, in your lives, when we gather together, when we spill out into our community, how many of you would like to be a vessel for God to move through you? How many of you, when you pray for the sick, want to see him healed? When you share the gospel, there's a power on your words that strikes their heart and people are changed, right? You want to be able to hear God's voice and speak to people what God is saying to them. You love the things of the Holy Spirit, right? But I've noticed over the years many times when 
revivals break out in different places, moves of the Holy Spirit break out, that one of the things I'll often hear is the Spirit was moving so powerfully that no, that the Bible isn't being preached, that nobody's preaching, nobody's teaching. And I can see that, you know, sometimes happening and because the voice of God will come out of people in the congregation, they'll share scriptures. I can see that kind of a thing happening. But I'll hear the Spirit's moving so powerfully that nobody ever preaches. And I immediately go, ooh, caution, caution. Because I see here the church is born and birthed in a powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit and revival and tongues and and, and prophecy, but also they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. So any movement of God that doesn't eventually, well, not even eventually, isn't born in immediately demonstrating good apostolic teaching and preaching of the scripture, solid teaching of the scripture is going to go errant, right? So in our own lives, think about your own life. If you love the power of the Holy Spirit, the moving of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's always going to confirm that and lead you to scripture. I'm glad you agree. See, in everything that they taught in the early church and they founded the church upon, Jesus was central. Whether they spoke of marriage, evangelism, family, money, discipleship, prayers, sex, whatever it was, they connected everything to Jesus. They made it all about his work on the cross. What Jesus did bled into every part of life. Listen, if you have any part of your life that Jesus isn't welcome, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you have a part of your life that's kind of like a closet in your house that's hidden away, that's kind of dark, and you, know, you have skeletons in there, whether they be skeletons of your past, of your present, whatever, a fantasy world, a different kind of life, a second life, any areas like that that you think Jesus isn't welcome in, let me just tell you something. He already knows about it. He's already at the door of it. He's probably already inside of it and he wants to help you clean it out because it's messing up your life and you just need to throw all the doors, all all of the closets open. You need to throw open every part of your life and you need to say, come on in, Holy Spirit. Have your way in here. Take your truth and apply it to these areas because this ugliness is messing my life up and everything I touch. Amen? Invite him in. Invite his truth in. You can't hide from the Lord. You know, a lot of people, they want to break up their life into sacred and secular. They want to say, well, you know, God's in this part of my life, but this part of my life's kind of just me. No, it's not. Look, God's in your sex life. A lot of you don't realize that. You think that somehow when you go in the bedroom that, you know, he leaves. Right? I don't know. It's weird. What are we thinking? He's everywhere. He's right there. He knows what you're looking at. He knows what you're thinking about. He knows what you're watching. He's right there, and he's calling you to a different kind of life in him. Amen? He knows all about your money. Well, we'll get to that later. All of it. All of it. He's there, and that's what he wants. He wants to be Lord and Savior, Master and King of it all. Got quiet in here. The second thing is, or the next thing is not the second. I think I've said second about four or five times now. The church was devoted to authentic fellowship. What does that mean? It says, and they they had the fellowship, and day by day, they attended the temple together, and they broke bread in their homes. What's that mean? The word fellowship means they shared life together. They they got together and ate together. They laughed together. They 
They had fun together. They recreated together. And they did spiritual things together. See, fellowship isn't just, you know, let's get a group of people together and talk about Jesus. And that's what we should do and and can do. But I'm telling you something. If you get together and barbecue and watch a game together, and you're a Christian hanging out with your brothers and sisters in, in the faith, that's fellowship. Are you sharing your life with them? Are you laughing? Are you enjoying life together? All of that's fellowship. Now, the beauty is, is right in the middle of that, we can invite the presence of God. We can invite the Holy Spirit into that fellowship. The church was born also devoted to breaking bread together. It says in verse 42, into the breaking of bread, in verse 46, breaking bread in their homes. What does that mean? It implies both communion, they had the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and also just eating together. And the idea was is that when you eat together, Jesus shows up. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that Jesus showed up at a lot of meals, instituted a lot of meals, right after he rose from the dead and he met them on the road to Emmaus and they got finally to Emmaus and they didn't realize Jesus had been walking with them the whole time? When did they know it was Jesus? When he broke the bread. Why? Because Jesus broke bread a lot. They were always eaten. He showed up whenever a meal was on. We used to have this guy in the church, Timothy Llewellyn, and it was, it was hilarious. He was one of our, our ushers. He was our head usher for years, and he was just awesome. He's Shelly Sweeler's brother, and he graduated to heaven a number of years ago. But Timothy went through a period of time when he was single where he had this uncanny ability to show up at our house just as we were about to eat. You ever known somebody like that? And I'm talking if Peggy made dinner at 5 or if she made dinner at 7. It didn't matter or anywhere in between. Right about the time it was getting ready to be served, we'd get a knock on the door and Timothy would be like, hey, how are you guys doing? Wow, you, you guys getting ready to eat? <laughs> Come on in, Timothy. That's how Jesus is. There's something about eating a meal together. There's something about when you're with people. And can I just encourage you to open up your life to people? Invite people to eat with you, have time at your home, hang out with you. I know some of you, you get really caught up in your house being perfect. Listen, if you're the person that has to have a perfect house before you invite somebody over, can I just encourage you to really pray and get over that? And then listen, if you're the person that judges people because their house isn't perfect, can I just encourage you to get over that? Because we're just going to have to kind of accept who we are and who other people are if we're going to really ever learn to connect. Amen? The church was born devoted to a life of prayer. It says, and they were devoted to the prayers. Prayer was a big part of the early church. They prayed all the time. They recognized something, that when they prayed, they were never alone. And I don't just mean that God was there. Have you ever thought about the fact that when Jesus told us how to pray, he said this, pray this way. And before this, he said, go into your room and be alone. You're like, oh, that's interesting. And then he says, pray this way. In your room alone. And then there's also time to pray together with people. But he said, when you're in your room alone, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So when he taught us to pray, he used our and us, and yet he said, go and be in the room. Now, I I, I was blown away when I realized years ago that we never pray alone, that we're part of a chorus, 
not just a chorus of people that are alive right now praying the same prayer we're praying, but we're part of a chorus of the ages that goes all the way back 2,000 years. It's called, it's called the company of the saints. It's called the cloud of witnesses. And we're praying that, and we're praying with all of the generations before. We're praying this prayer with people all over the globe. Whenever we pray that, we are praying together with our other brothers and sisters. And I'll illustrate this for you. One time years ago, I was out walking a road, and I was praying, and I was praying the Lord's Prayer. And I I prayed, Our Father who art in heaven. And at that moment, I didn't hear it audibly, but at that moment, as I prayed, I heard millions of voices in in my mind, all these people from all over the earth in different languages. And we were all simultaneously praying it. And I realized at that moment, I am praying with a family all over the earth. Prayer is important because we know in prayer, heaven is connected to earth. And we bring heaven's presence, provision, life, power. We bring it down to earth when we pray. So that's why Jesus said, pray this way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that way. Bring it down. So prayer was a huge part of the early church. The other thing is the church was born in signs and wonders. It says fear came upon every soul and wonders and signs were done. What are wonders and signs? Healings, miracles, people being set free, addicts being delivered, the sick being healed, the lost being found, the lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, God taking care of the needs of people. Those are wonders and signs, the miraculous power of God actively working in people's life. I want more of that. How about you? The church was born in the generous economy of God. What's that mean? It says they were all together All who believed were together and they had all things in common. Listen to this. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. What's that mean? God's economy works through the voluntary sharing of resources. And then God breathes his miraculous spirit upon whatever we give him. This kind of giving and sharing attitude is the result of the presence of the Holy Spirit among us, moving us to have true fellowship and share life together. Listen. God has an economy, and it's much different than the American economy, than the global economy, than Wall Street. God has an economy. His economy, it works like this. If you grasp, if you hold on, if you seek to keep for yourself, He will be sure that things come that cause you to lose it. But if you take what you have and you give it away, and you serve others with your resources, and you let your resources be a blessing for for God's purpose in the earth, the gospel, the church, missions, life, your neighbor next door, the person broke down on the side of the road, the person in need of food, the single mom who needs a little bit of help. If you get in the game and begin to open up your life, open up to God's world and what God's doing, and you say, Lord, I'll give, I'll trust you, and I'll give what you give me to other people. Yes, your needs will be met. Yes, he wants you to pay your bills. I'm not saying you know that you give to someone and not pay your bills, unless the Holy Spirit really tells you to, and then he'll take care of your bills. But that should be a you know, rare thing. But what I am saying, what I am saying is that God will call you to give. And here's what you'll find. You'll never be able to match what he gives you. 
That's God's economy. God's economy is an economy of sharing and giving and not grasping because God knows something about human nature. Human nature is idolatrous. Human nature builds idols in the heart and he knows that possessions possess us. He knows that stuff gets us. And once it wraps its tentacles around the heart and we care more about our stuff than we do about God's glory, we're in trouble. And so God will work to disentangle your heart from your stuff. And one of the main ways that he'll do it is he'll have you give it. And I can think about the times in my own life when I've been like, Lord, I I feel like the Lord's telling us to do something and and to give something. And I'm like talking to my wife, honey, I feel like we're supposed to do such and such. And uh, I don't know if we can do this right now, but I feel like God wants us to. And every time we've ever done it, every time we've ever said, okay, Lord, we're letting go of it because ultimately it doesn't belong to us. Every time we've done it, we've watched God come through. And I just want to ask, is there anybody else in the room? I just want you to be honest. Anybody else in the room that has learned that in your own life? Look at all the hands. That's God's way. And the last point, and I'm done. The church was born, well, last two points. The church was born in a life of praise and worship. They were a worshiping church. They praised God continually. And it was born for growth. By leading people to Jesus. It says, having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. 